I want you to open your Bibles once again this morning to Luke chapter 21. We were there last week. Luke chapter 21, our title is The Day That Is, that's the day we're in right now, and the day that is coming. It's on its way. It's been predicted. It's been forecast. We have read about it. We should be prepared for it and not be taken unawares by it. A day is coming. It's not a fun day. It's not a good day. It's the day of the Lord, and it, a lot of people, lots of people, most of this earth is going to reel to and fro over the things that are coming as God brings judgment to this earth. In the meantime, while we are here, Luke 21 and verse 34, take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life, eating and drinking and just being involved and setting aside the Lord and all that. And that day come upon you unawares. How many of you know there are things that can distract us spiritually? That even though in this life your greatest intention is to be ready and to be saved and to meet the Lord and all, and to have a good spiritual testimony, you need to understand and know that you can be distracted. And what could have been really good might not be at all or barely is because of these distractions. Then verse 35, for as a snare, this day that we're talking about, as a snare, this day will come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth, everybody. Watch you, therefore. And pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. The day that is coming is referred to as a snare, capturing people, people not paying attention, wasn't ready for this. A day it also uses the word unawares. Well, I didn't know that. And a lot of people who really aren't being taught a lot of people who don't want to be taught, who are not interested in being instructed as they go to church about life, people who would like to think I know as much about what I need to do as I don't need people to tell me, that day comes and they say, well, I didn't know that because they were unawares. It's not God's fault because God has all the information that a man can need in this life to be ready. Therefore, we're all accountable. All of us are in the same boat when it comes to that. And then he told us, he said, pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape what's coming. In other words, you don't want to be here. You don't want all the things that God has been telling us for centuries that's going to happen in the last days. You really don't want to be a part of that. You want to escape that. He said, pray that you may be accounted worthy to Escape, that's a biblical word. Escape all these things. I don't want to be here when this time of Jacob's trouble or the wrath of God is poured out on the whole earth. I don't want to live right now, today, aimlessly wandering around, learning religious cliches. I'm saved, praise the Lord, amen, hallelujah. I don't want to just learn the language but not live it because that won't make me ready. Going to church won't make me ready. Being in a good Christian family and having good Christian friends, that doesn't make me ready. It's just my lifestyle includes all of that. But he says, and I believe he's making it clear to us here, if you want to escape all these things, you must pray that you'll be accounted worthy. Now, we looked at word worthy the other day, and it means to have strength. Pray that you will have strength. Perhaps it means that in light of what God has been telling us for centuries or for you in our short, brief life on this earth, those of us that are here, pray that you'll have the courage to make application of the things you've been hearing, that you will put these things to practice in your life and take serious what God is saying because this is where your strength is. The Bible says, be strong in the Lord. 
and the power of his might, because only in this way shall we escape. But you must escape. You must escape. Pray that you will be able to escape. Because if you can't escape, if you don't escape, then all these things that he's talking about are coming this way. Look at verse 28. And when these things begin to come to pass, verse 31, so likewise, when these things become to pass. I mean, it's coming. It cannot be avoided. These things are going to happen. Who else, I'm asking you, who else will be able to stand before the Lord, that is, in his favorable presence? It has to be those who live the life that he's given us to live, draw their strength from it, receive his strength, and endure to the end. These are the ones who will escape. Now, last week we said this, concerning this information that God has given us about the last days. First of all, we talked about perilous times times that are dangerous, times of uncertainty. Bad things happen to good people a lot. A time of uh, people blowing up airplanes and blowing up buildings and blowing up people and massacring people and shooting, you know, from the Columbine shooting to the recent shooting in Aurora, Colorado, to the blowing up of a public building in Oklahoma City to the shooter in Texas in the 60s, and to others. We read all these crazy things that people do, killing their family and then committing suicide, the pressures of life, the difficulty, the dangers. People can't cope and don't cope. They give up. I don't know if they've ever been taught or if they just don't need it, but they just can't cope. And so there is a time when men's hearts, the Bible said, will fail them because of fear. Perilous times danger. In some places, in order to go to a ball game, you have to go through a screener because of the fear that somebody there might try to blow something up. And it's not hard, they say, to make a bomb and blow up people and all of that. I don't know. But we're looking at other things, political corruption. How many times has somebody you admire turned out to be a, having multiple affairs or doing crazy things and, and just all the things you thought you could trust in that he was saying and count on, on him, they turn out to be terrible. Or our government sometimes, I think, is pointing our country to socialism and, and bigger government in which uh, we no longer can think for ourselves. We need government systems to rule us and provide for us and, and live on handouts and welfare. And these are the days that are coming, and people don't like that, and they recall against that. The Bible points us to all of these things. Or immorality, the flood of filth in the last days. But there was a flood of filth in earlier times throughout history. Filth. I just heard this week about the owner of the Chick-fil-A restaurants. He had publicly said that he believed in the family should be one man, one woman. And that the only right marriage is between a man and a woman and he believes in the sacredness of a home and family life and all of those kind of things. And you would have thought that he spit in the church aisle. And suddenly you say, oh, the mayor of this big city of Boston and then one in, of course, San Francisco and then one out here. This guy said he would not hire homosexuals. And, oh, and these people who rep New York and somebody said, we don't want Chick-fil-A here, you know, I was thinking when I heard it, because I talk back to these things. I said, you are one voice that doesn't have a clue what people believe or know. And for every voice like you, say, we don't want Chick-fil-A here. There are 9,000 that are trying to get a sandwich. <laughs> I just heard this in Louisville this week. Recently, I was down there for something. And when I was coming out, I'd heard that on the radio. And I thought, Chick-fil-A, I'd heard that the Christians own it. They won't serve on Sunday. They don't open their stores on Sunday. And the, the man is a pretty inspiring Christian man that owns the place. So there was one across the way. I saw one, and traffic was horrible down on St. Matthew, just horrible. And so I had to weave my noble way through all this traffic and <laughs> go through this street and that way and finally got in line. There were two lines going. I thought, well, everybody must be thinking what I'm thinking. I'm going to buy one. I don't even want a sandwich. I'm going to buy one. <laughs> Simply because it's not my way of protest against immorality as much as my way to support somebody that I believe believes in this sense like I do. 
And, and I cannot figure out what is the love affair, what is the love affair today with leaders and sodomy or homosexuality? And what is their love affair with it? What do they derive from this? What is it about sexual perversion that causes people to say, oh, praise them? What is it? Because this is relatively recent in our history that this stuff is going on. And, and you would think that if you said anything about it, that you're just an awful, awful person. And yet there are far more Christians who feel the way I'm just said than those who get all the time in the media who don't feel the way I said. It doesn't matter. It's the last days. This is going to happen. Immorality is going to increase. Nastiness is going to increase. Television is going to portray the single family and living together and probably abandoning the need for marriage after a while. And a man can marry a man and a woman can marry a woman and get benefits. See, I grew up a long time ago and I'm thinking, are you kidding me? A man marrying a what? When are they going to start marrying dogs? When are they going to marry their horse or their cow? It's so corrupt. I'm talking about the government will okay it. Get you a dog. <laughs> they will. Anyway, we're living in that time. I don't get it, but they're living in that time. And while people used to talk about the trashy vision, there's nothing nastier than the internet. You say, well, I'm on the internet. Well, I don't watch that stuff. Good. I'm just saying that if you have a computer that you watch nasty stuff, you don't. Sometimes people have to have a computer to work, but I'm saying the opportunity for things that are perverted and unclean are more on the Internet than they ever were on television. But that depends on what's in your heart as to where you go with what you believe and all of that and what you want to watch and do. Turn to Second Thessalonians 2 so I can get started. Then there is religious corruption in the last days. Jeremiah speaks about it so much in his book as the reason judgment came. It wasn't so much that the people were worshiping idols on the hill. They were doing that, but they were just corrupt in what they believed. They didn't believe anything. Well, they would take an axe and hew out a, a tree and make some kind of a god out of it, like a totem pole or something, and then they would imagine this thing has godlike qualities, and they would begin to pray to it, sacrifice to it, sacrifice children to these things. And the great reason in the Bible why God disowned his people and drove not only the northern tribes of Israel out, but then later on the southern two tribes of Judah out of the land of Israel was because of these things, because they turned away from God and they turned to other sources for their help, sources which God said, a rock can do nothing, a tree can do nothing, but you think it's a God. And they forsook the living God for some dead rock, and God drove them out. He said he would bring them back because he's faithful. But let me tell you something, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, verse 11, and for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Does your Bible say something similar to that? Listen to it. Man makes a choice. He doesn't want to hear about God. He doesn't want to live on God's terms. He wants to be religious and have the favor and the flavor of religion in his life. He just doesn't want to do it God's way, so he devises his way the way of man. It seems good. It has a lot of nice things to it. They use the Bible and they help people and all of that. There is a way that seems right and they devise that way. But as you examine their way, there are just many instances in which they will not do what God said. They will not do what they've been taught. If somebody teaches that, they'll get rid of them, get somebody who will itch their ears and tell them what they want to hear. That's the last days. So here's what God said he would do. If you don't want to hear what I have to say, I will give you something that you will believe in, and you'll be judged for it. And so there are men who are sent to the world, false prophets, false anything. They're false. They have the appearance of being good. They're greatly admired. They can write books, speak well, and all of that. 
but their message is a message of death. And to say that is to be called a right-wing, eccentric, so on and so forth. But it's still true. Their message is a message of death. If they speak not according to this word, they have no light. If they have no light, they walk in darkness. They preach darkness. As Jesus said, if the light that is in you, the way you're seeing things, if the light that is in you is really dark, it's not what God shows, then your life is doomed to a life of darkness. And all that follow you be like the blind. Following the blind, they're both going to fall in the ditch. This is predicted and forecast for us to know in the last days so that we can avoid it and not be like that. God opened our eyes to see clearly what this is about. Now, he said in verse 12, God will send them strong delusion, and here's what happens, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in things that aren't right, unrighteousness. Let me give you another translation, which doesn't make it better. It's probably not even accurate, but it's kind of a paraphrase. Listen at this. He says, and for this cause, God will give them up to the power of deceit, and they will put their faith in what is false. And for that reason, a generation, multitudes, masses will be damned. Let me tell you something. I want to be dramatic sometimes to make a point, but I'm not very good at being dramatic. If you don't want to hear what God says, if you don't want to live the way he says, he will allow you to hear something else, and the result of what you hear will cause your life to be ruined. The way God is teaching us is not easy. People aren't breaking down their doors and getting up early to come and hear this. This is not a simple and easy way. In fact, God says only a few that hear it will believe it and find the way to life. It's a challenging word. Everything changes when you go this way. And yet, if you don't want to go this way, then he'll let you go another way. Unless you're elect, then he'll a hook in your jaw and so forth. Let me give you the clearest picture of the last day so we can get started. Turn to Luke 17. There's two people in the Bible that the Bible points to in defining the last days, how it's going to be, what it's going to look like. Luke 17, verse 26. Jesus speaking said, and as it was in the day of Noah, you can call it Noe if you want to, but let's just call it Noah, Noach. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. Do you believe that? If we went out and said, as it was in the days of Noah, it's going to be the same way in the last days, you would say amen to that. But that doesn't mean you know how it was in the days of Noah. It just means you know what he said about the days of Noah. So it is for the church to examine what was going on the days of Noah. And then he goes on. That isn't all he said. He said, verse 27, in those days they did eat and they drank, surfeiting and drunkenness, married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and devoured them all. It was life as usual. They ate, they drank, they went on this vacation, they did that, they went, they planned, and they set aside the things of God in order to do the things that they had opportunity to do. Life is usual. That's the way it was in those days. They ate and they drank and they lived their regular lives without regard to the preparation for the Lord's coming or what God had said. They need to live that way. They just left that part out. And then he goes on and say, verse 28, likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planned, they built. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all, even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed, the day of the Lord. You don't want to be here. 
It's going to be a day of devastation, as the Bible predicts, like there has never been on this earth. When the whole earth is judged, and man can do nothing to stop it. Man has as much power to prevent judgment as he does to stop lightning and thunder. The day is coming in which God says, that is enough. The last man has crossed the line and joined the rest of this creation that's going to be judged, and the whole world is headed for judgment and devastation like that has never been seen, known, or heard of on the face of this earth. Worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, let me tell you two things about what we said here, about what Noah did and what Lot did. The Bible says in Hebrews 11 that by faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, like we're being, moved with fear and reverence, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. And in 2 Peter 2, 5, spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness. It is my belief that in the days of Noah, there was much violence, there was much immorality, and there was complete disregard for the word of God because Noah preached righteousness. And the only people that made it was his household and him. All the rest of the world died. But they heard him preach. They heard him pronounce. They heard him proclaim, just like they do today. They hear it. People hear it being spoken of today. But it doesn't mean anything because there's too much fun to do. Too many places to go. Too many thrills to be had. Too many... Things, things, and more things. Or they say, well, I can always go to church. I can always listen to it. I'll do it. And they keep putting it off and putting it off. And one day, they go into the ark. They just go into the ark. And all the animals go in. And I can see all the people out there watching all these animals go into an ark, wondering what in the world is this? Must be some kind of show. And all these animals kept going into an ark. And Noah must have said to him, I told you all. And he went into the ark. And as they stood there and mocked probably and laughed at him and said, you know, evening news slurs against him, suddenly the door comes up off and slams shut. It just comes up and... And everybody, whoa, and then the first drop of water fell. The first big drop, pop, what was that? What is that? And then another drop fell, and all of a sudden, it just started coming down in deluge. Then all of them out there realized that all of them were wrong. As they would say in today, oh, my God, which he's not. He was right. We heard the truth, and we missed it. And they floated on whatever they could float on, cried and scratched, opened the door to us, opened the door, opened the door to us. We heard you preach. They, Jesus said that about himself. No. And after the last man alive, floating on his log of hunger and whatever else, slipped off that log and drowned, that was the end of all men, except for the ones in the ark. It's going to be like that at the end, that devastating Oh, surely not. What did he say? What did he say in those days of Noah prior to the flood? Life as usual. He was preaching. What about Lot? It said this about Lot in uh, Sodom. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah was a bad place. There's nothing ever good said about Sodom. Never, ever in the Bible. They were an abomination to God. They had perverted nature and corrupted themselves. Men with men, as Romans says, doing those things which are unseemly. Women with women doing things that they did, which was wrong against nature. And there was much violence. You know that when you read the story about Lot. Much violence, much immorality, total disregard for God. It said this about Lot. It said that, and delivered just Lot 
that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds, only Lot, only Lot was bothered by what he saw. And Lot was able to escape with his two daughters and his wife. And the rest of the entire metropolis went down in smoke. All of them died. And his wife, she couldn't take it. She looked back. The Bible says she turned into a pillar of salt. When we were in Israel last time driving down to the Dead Sea, they, in a mountain range, they're very, very rugged. And there was a big statue. It looked like a woman, you know, like this here. And they said, that's Lot's wife. I remember remarking on the bus that she's a big old girl. It's <laughs> a great big mountain thing here. But it was probably in this area where Sodom and Gomorrah was. It might be at the bottom of the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on the face of the earth. Maybe it's under all of that water. I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't there to watch it. All I can say is that there were two men who escaped all these things, and the influence that they had saved some of their families, or their families in Noah's case. And the Bible said in the last days, there will be a concern among some people for their families. There will be a concern of some people who move with fear as Noah did and begin to take serious what God is saying. And they begin to take stock. They begin to look at their kids where they have no interest in God. They have interest only in fun and games and they're begging for a tattoo. I mean, their life is so caught up in the things that God is going to judge that they can't see clearly. And a lot of, I think, fathers and parents are going to start praying in earnest and taking seriously their need to raise up godly seed and do their best to recover what they can. Because let me tell you something, standing here today, there's a whole generation, I'm watching this last days, a whole generation, it seems, except for the few, have absolutely no regard for God. Have no interest in God, no regard for God, nothing. So what do we do? Well, here's a couple of things that we start with today. To begin with, in these last days, we realize that God has warned us in his word about this day. They, I just told you, I just briefed it. If we went into detail about all this, we'd be here for a week. But I just briefed these things. Now, God gives us 24 hours a day, gives us a Bible. We've learned how to read. We can gather as much of this as we want to. We can learn as much as you want to learn. It just depends on how interested you are, how much you want to get into this, and how much you want your life and your soul to be affected by this message. Jesus is coming, folks. Jesus isn't coming for a lethargic, lazy, and indifferent church. Trust me with that. A lot of people think, well, I raised my hand and I went forward 30 years ago, and, and, and what? You really think that Jesus is preparing a place for people who are indifferent? He's coming back only for those that look for him. Those people are looking to make their own way through life. They don't have time or they're unwilling to take time to make sure that spiritually they're looking for Jesus. How can I know, Lord? It's a prayer. How can I know? Make me to see what I need to see. Open my eyes to see around me and to see my own life. I don't want, like Paul, to preach to others and then at the end be a castaway myself because I took for granted, well, I preach the Bible. I'm going to heaven. No, you're not. You may go to heaven, but not because you preach. You got a life to live. You got preparation to make. You got personal attention to yourself and time with God. God's holding us to these things. I can't say it too much, but the day is coming. It's like a clock ticking. It's like our universe out there. It can't last forever. Can it? We get into thermodynamics here now. How many of you know that? When the sun releases every 24 hours, all the magnificent power that goes off the sun in terms of heat, how many of you know it doesn't replace it? That what goes out, there's nothing that replaces it. It's gone. Yet they've lost that much. Amen? And the sun, of course, can burn longer than I've been alive. 
but it'll have a point at which there's nothing left and it's over and there can be nothing to live because of it. Now, that's just a point to make, not anything to do with us, but God is in control of everything. There's nothing out there that he's not in control of. But he warns us. He warns us. He tells us that this is the way we should walk in. Didn't he send his spirit to show us things to come? He said he sent his spirit in Luke 16 and verse 13. He shall show you things to come. Now, what if you've never received the spirit? Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. What if you've assumed you have the Holy Spirit? Somebody told you that if you raised your hand, the Holy Spirit came in. It came right down your arm, right into your heart. When you got baptized, the Holy Spirit jumped out of water and jumped into you. Well, sure, everybody's got the Holy Spirit, nothing to it. Nothing there to trust in, nothing there to listen to, nothing there to be sought for leading. It's just, yeah, everybody's good. Just a, yeah, just, yeah, everybody's got that. And yet the Bible says when he comes, he'll show you things to come. You're looking at a generation of church people that don't have a clue. But how could they? Again, I don't think in religious settings, in Christianity today, people are that interested in being taught. Tell me a story, read a verse of Scripture, and, and make a little point or make a little story out of it. Make it no more than, what, 21 minutes, and then let us go? Just not interested. But in the days of Noah, violence covered the earth. Immorality and indifference. Those three things brought judgment. Every time they come to the surface, they bring judgment. And you see it all the time. You see it in the world. You see it, I mean, the movies today, the stuff that people watch. If they're anything like they're advertised, they are nothing but trash. They are nothing but trash. Killing, maiming, crazy space creatures that look like they're made out of a tin can with claws on them. I don't get it. I don't get it. I just don't get it. But concerning the word of God that he gives us to open our eyes, that same word brings us comfort. Because you see, we're not left down here alone. Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll not only guide you into all truth and show you things to come, but he'll lead you. He'll lead you. He'll begin to give you information and he'll begin to inform you. One of the things that we learn in the Word is that God is in control. God is in control. All this mess in the world, all the corruption, all the yuck, and all, God is in control of it. There's nothing out there that man's going to do or some emperor or some despot ruler somewhere or somebody threatening to drop a bomb. There is nothing anybody's going to do on this earth that God is not in control of and can prevent or will allow. Nothing. God who created the world is in providential control of it. Now, his providence means that he not only sustains it, but he keeps it and he directs it. God has a plan the way it began. God has a plan the way it's going to end. And everything in history will happen to bring it to that point. And man can do nothing to keep that from happening. God's in control. He's in control of everything. Turn to Colossians 1 just for a moment, just for a, a brief trip. There's a nice place there to stop in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 16 and 17. Speaking of Jesus, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Principalities and powers, you're talking about another kingdom. How many of you know that Jesus Christ, as God, is in control of everything? You better hope he is, and you better believe he is. If you can't hope, then believe he is. Because it says in verse 17, and he is before all things, 
and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Christ is over all, rules all, and controls all. Now, I'm glad that he does because I'm not left without hope here. God is able to take my little insignificant life and the little brief time that I'm on this earth and make sure that what he started, the journey he started me on, that he is able to bring me to his wonderful conclusion, and that's heaven. With all the struggles in our lives along the way and all the weaknesses and the failures and the faults and, oh, God, and in time you feel like God, even in those times, is in direct control of your life. In fact, the reason you perked up and didn't quit, it didn't work for me. I just ain't got it. I can't do it. It's too much, too hard, too hot, too slow, too young. Too. You know why you perked up? Maybe it was that person who called you on the phone. God directed it. Maybe it was just the next morning, as simple a thing as sitting there about ready to quit and just give it up, and a bird landed outside and sang a song. Well, now you laugh, but who knows? Could God make your life change because a bird sang? God can make your life change if you sing. God can change anything he wants to. He is in sovereign, masterful control of all creation. And when he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, his plan was to bring you through this life to, on this journey to the place where you are ready to meet him, and you will. And he will say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. See, if I didn't believe that, if, if I didn't believe he had the power to do that, well, I don't know how I would make it. But I know today standing here, like I can tell you today sitting there, God is bigger than all of us. He's never left us out. God who can raise the mightiest on a throne or pull down a nation. Huge events in history. It's the same God who also knows where the sparrows are and all the hairs on top of your head and can take you that nobody knows or take that one soul that got saved in a jungle that nobody's ever heard of and never will know, and God can sovereignly direct the steps of that person to bring them to his conclusion. Amen. Right. If God be for me, who can be against me? No wonder there is a reverence and an appreciation and a fear of God in some people when you realize the magnificence of what I just said, that the Almighty has gathered you unto himself as a hen would her chicks, that he has graven you on the palms of his hands and will never leave you nor forsake you, never forget you, that he starts you out and he makes sure your day is concluded, and that because you mess up, he chastens you, he does that because it's part of his plan to bring you here. And the testimony you have is going to affect other people along the way. That's part of his plan too. There are no mistakes in this room. No mistakes is sitting in front of me or watching this. There isn't any. God has a plan. I'm glad that I'm a part of it. And this activity of God whereby he sustains and creates and preserves and directs all of creation to fulfill his purpose, I am so glad because that's his providence. He's in providential control. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Remember, there was a king, Nebuchadnezzar, remember in Daniel's book, Daniel 4 and 5? For seven years, he lived like a wild beast. His nails curved out to be like claws. Hair grew on him, and, and he lived like an animal. You know what one thing he did that for? God caused that to happen so that that man would learn one thing. You know what that one thing was? That God rules on this earth in the kingdom of man. And in this hour when all of these designs of men and these heady 
sophisticated intellectuals come up with all these new ideas about God and religion and what's right and what's, and what's wrong. The Bible says it in the Psalms that God will have them all in derision. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. Because man thinking himself to be wise, he becomes a fool. And God will have the whole bunch of them in derision. And one day a man in his wisdom, as just before he self-destructs, God will help him. And he will come down with his saints back to this earth to establish his throne and put down all rule and all authority. It is a day on this earth called the day of the Lord. It's worth a serious study. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord's vengeance. It's like God saying that for our creation is enough. That is enough. And he comes down and judges in the last days. Gets rid of the heavens, gets rid of the earth. There's nothing out there but a dark void. And then there's the holy city that sits in the middle of it. Light of God illumines the whole thing 1,500 miles high. A city as long as from here to almost Salt Lake City. That wide, that high, that deep, it sits in the middle of darkness. The Bible speaks of outer darkness, gnashing of teeth for people who just didn't want to do it God's way. They wanted to fool around, mess around, drink around, cool around, and one day unawares, just like that. Just like the door slammed, judgment begins. Amen. And it's going to be like that. Also, I praise the Lord this morning because God provides a way for us to overcome weaknesses and threats and attacks. Turn to Ephesians 6. You're not far from it. Ephesians 6. You know this, and you should know this very well. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 through 18. What a wonderful statement here. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of Brother Hamilton's words. And what it says is it. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. All right, here we go, all of you. You got a chance here. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles and the methods of the devil. But we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world and against spiritual wickedness in high places in the form of thoughts and feelings. Those thoughts and feelings, when they're not right, they come from another power. When you yield to them, you yield to that power, and you give place to that power, and that power takes place in your life. Did you hear me? The Bible says in Ephesians 4 that we're not to give place to the devil because you can. You give place to him by cooperating with him, by doing what he said, doing things his way. Wherefore, verse 13, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. Stand like this, having your loins girt with truth. And put on the breastplate of righteousness, truth, doing right, living right, thinking right, talking right, living right. And on your feet is a gospel of peace. And above all, look at verse 16. And above all, even more than those three things, taking the shield of faith where which you in this lifetime will be able to quench any, every, and all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and praying always with all prayer and supplication in tongues. 
That's what it means. Let me tell you something, folks. Not only are there not many people who can do this, but there are many Pentecostals, so-called, who don't do this. I'm surprised some of the years I began preaching in some of the Assemblies of God or Pentecostal churches, how much they were doing things spiritually, praying in tongues a lot. Towards the end, I'd go back to one of those, and they were not much different than any church you'd go to anywhere. Many of them grew and got bigger, and the bigger they got, the more, I guess, they thought we better not do so many of these other things because we might offend some people, and they become stagnant and stale. I know how that sounds when you say that. But I'm just saying that when you pray, you pray in tongues. You pray in the Spirit. That's how you pray in the Spirit. But verse 16 says, but above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you may be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. I think we ought to preach on faith some every now and then anyway. I really do. One lady said years ago, said, that's all you ever talk about. I hope I'm guilty. Lord, let it be so that that's all I talk about because it's one thing that apparently is lacking in the church that is being beat up and eat up by a lot of spirits. But if the shield of faith, the Bible says it will quench every fiery dart the devil throws, it quenches every single one of them. Nobody gets defeated. There's no defeat. If you quench all the fiery darts of the devil, who is our adversary, then what defeats you? Nothing. If people are being defeated and they are being cast aside and they're not doing well, it's something wrong with faith. That shield or whatever it's supposed to be obviously is not working right because when it does work, you win. When it works, you win. Not without scars and wounds. That's called fighting. There are battle scars on a lot of people. There are things that will happen in your life, things that maybe just recently happened, things that have happened in some of your lives. They're like little scars in the back of your mind. They'll never leave. But you do not have to be ruled by those things. You can overcome and you can triumph daily in Christ. I can think of sometimes in Christian ministry, how many mistakes I've made, how many times I didn't do this, I didn't, and oh, ugh. I can't go back and change that. That's just like when you pull the trigger, the bullet leaves the barrel, you can't go get it. It's gone. It's on its way somewhere. When you let go of the arrow, you can't go get it back. When you cut the pillow and throw the feathers out, you can't get them all back. I mean, it's done. It's on its way. I mean, it's gone. And you live with it. You messed up, you live with it. You regroup, you recover, you make the best out of what's left. Didn't Jesus say that to church in Laodicea? Two or three of them. You don't have much left, but if you'll strengthen what you've got left, you'll make it. Isn't he gracious? Isn't he gracious? God is so gracious, and he gives us these weapons. He said they work. You got the Bible. You got his right ways. You got all these things that he's promised. But he said, above all, take unto you the shield of faith wherewith you will be able to quench all the fiery darts, that's those attacks of the devil. You'll experience the burning of those fiery darts, it may take them a while to burn out, but they will burn out because this shield does quench them. If you leave that shield up there and use it, you will win. And the weapons he gives us, what about his name, the power of his name? Blessed be the name. Proverbs, what, 1810 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. What did the righteous do? The righteous run into it, and the righteous are safe. What did he say in Philippians 2 and verse 9? Wherefore God 
also hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Would that be the devil and his crowd? Yes. Bowing is allegiance. Humbling yourself to one greater at the name of Jesus. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. What wonderful weapons, simple weapons God has given to simple people. Intelligent people couldn't do this. Educated, non-Christian people couldn't do this. I don't mean you're not intelligent. I don't mean that. But people who think that they're beyond this, they can't explain with a book or in their philosophical moments. They cannot explain how you can use a name and cause a disease, something they can see, a problem they can see disappear by something that they can't see. That doesn't make sense. Nor does the resurrection make sense to those people. Nor does the virgin birth make sense to those people. Nor does heaven make sense to those people. Nor does creation make sense to those people. But those people can't be saved either. God bypassed those people to get to you. God chose... 1 Corinthians 1, he chose ordinary people to be his people. He gets a few of those, but not many. And here we are this morning. Here we are today at this time of our life, five years later, 20 years later, 30, 40 years later. The end is closer now, of course, than it ever has been. The sun doesn't have as much power that it used to have. It has more than we need. But anyway, we're there now. And there's a lot of end-time apprehension and concern. In time, we used to be real convinced and sure about tomorrow that God's going to fix something or make something right. Sometimes we're not so sure that he will anyway, after all. We hear news about this happening. We hear news about something else happened. Things didn't turn out the way they were supposed to. A lot of people begin to draw back and begin to get real concerned about, well, something is not right here. What could it be? I've been there as much as anybody in here has. What are you going to do? Something's not working right. What if? Hey, what if? Let me tell you something. I've already told you this once. Every story I've ever had, I've told twice. Not long ago, maybe it was Jake's little boys and, you know, the talk and the tension, the tension of talk. Does that make sense? The tension of talk, you get a phone call that makes things more tense or somebody says something that you don't know if it's right or not, but it doesn't. I remember sitting in my office knowing that eventually everything comes back here anyway. Just deal with it. And it just occurred to me, just like a flash. I'd been studying about it a week before. It just came. The solution. The solution to all the tension. To all the apprehension and tension. You know what it is? I cast all my cares upon him. I lay all of my burdens down at his feet. And any time I don't know what to do, I just cast all my cares upon you. A good song, isn't it? Turn to First Peter 5. Then you can sing it. Maybe we'll sing it together here. Or I'll point to one of you and then you stand up and sing it. Okay? First Peter 5 and verse 7. What does it say? Casting all your care. The word care means anxiety. We would call it stress, tension. Things that immobilize peace or that just kind of puts you in a bind. Care. The Bible says casting all your concern and care and your worries upon him. Why? He doesn't worry about you. That's not what that other word careth means. But God cares for you. 
What if I told you God doesn't want you to worry? What if I said to Shelbyville Christian Assembly this morning, God didn't give us worry as a way to live. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, take no thought five times. Take no thought is the word merimno, which means to divide and distract the mind to be tossed this way and that way. He didn't tell us to live like that. Peter writes, he said, cast all of that stuff over on the Lord. I remember that day I did. I said something like this, Lord, I know what I believe. I've stated to you what I believe. I've sent back to you the word you sent to me. I can't make it work. I'm not capable of performing it. All I can do, all I can do is take you at your word. That's as far as I can go. And I'm casting all of my concern about whether or not this is going to work. I'm casting it over on you. If it works, fine. If it doesn't, fine. But it's in your hands. I'm not going to worry about it anymore. And I didn't. And I haven't. I'm not going to worry about it. Because worry doesn't change a thing, does it? Who's growing an inch because he worried? Oh, I've got to grow an inch. I've got to grow an inch. 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 Doesn't work like that. You can't worry. Worry is like saying, I'm not trusting you, God. I'm not putting this into your hands and letting you take care of it. I feel like I have to do something here myself. Well, that's what your faith is. That's what you do. And faith is what releases it and said, Lord, I'm not going to worry about it. But it's serious. It's, it's bleeding or it's, oh, you know, this thing is looking bad. Probably is. Doesn't look good, does it? but I refuse to worry about it. What if you die? Then I die. But I didn't die worrying. Let God have it. Amen. These are the last days. Men's hearts are failing them because of fear. The drug companies are making mega bucks off of worry. They promote worry. Did you know the latest statistics show and then at the end of the, oh, no, I might have it because I breathed twice last week. You know, if you breathe fast or twice a day, then there's, you, know, you may have scobulosis. And if you have scobulosis, we have a pill here called descobulosis. And what are the side effects? Well, heart attacks, liver damage, uh, kidney failure. I heard one of those the other day. I couldn't believe it. I could not. I said, whoever's taken that didn't hear what I heard. And laboratory tests cause cancer, cause a heart attack, kidney failure, lung disorder, eyeball fell out, whatever, whatever they say. People are so dreadfully afraid of pain, and the devil uses all of this to capture and control congregations in the church. The preacher's on medication. He's got his health insurance. They made sure he's got a good package. Therefore, he can't preach against that. And people look forward to sickness. They believe in sickness. If you preach that they don't have to be sickness, you're looking for a job. They don't want to hear it. These are the days right now we're living in. Who's going to escape? Who will escape then in closing? Well, I can tell you who's going to escape. The faithful will. When a man's ways please the Lord, he'll make even his enemies to be at peace with him. I want to read for you 1 Peter chapter 3. You're not that far from it. You can follow me if you want to. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 12 through 15. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you and so forth. Who is he that will harm you? You tell me. If you do that which is good, what God has said, the question is, who is he then that's going to harm you? Just be faithful. What did God say to Joshua? 
of the several things he said in chapter 1 of Joshua before he sent him in to lead these people across the Jordan to conquer the promised land and divide it and give it as an inheritance to all of God's different tribes. Before he went in there, you know what the Lord said to him? He said, be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid. Be not afraid. Neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with you wherever you go. What if that was true this morning in this place? What if everywhere you went, God in his might went with you? What if everywhere you went, when you got in your car to drive somewhere, you would just drive home today or go to the grocery store tomorrow, everywhere you go, he is there with you. I mean, he is there in his capacity with you. He is there fulfilling his promise to you that he will keep you and save you and lead you and guide you and direct you and bring you through. He that started a good work will finish it. What if he every day he was there with you everywhere you went? What would you be afraid of? You know, again, again. He said, and who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? Okay, congregation, church, getting ready to close our Bibles. We've got to read one more verse, but we're getting ready to close our Bibles and think. What in a single verse of Scripture can you leave us this morning as something that puts this all together as what we need to do? All right, I'll do that. I'll do that because you asked me. Second Timothy, you asked me. I'll do my best. Second Timothy, chapter three, verse thirteen. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Well, we know that that's happening. But concerning you and me. In light of everything else that's going on, but continue you, you continue in the things which you have learned and have what? Been assured of. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. We can't get past verse 14 because that's when I'm leaving you today. Continue thou in the things that you have learned and become assured of. Now, you all know what it means to learn. To learn is to gather in information. You go to school, you go somewhere where information is supposed to be, and you pay to hear what somebody has to say. It doesn't cost you nothing here, but it costs you there. So you pay somebody to tell you stuff. You don't even know if it's right. It sounds smart. It must be right. But you pay people to tell you. You learn things. But now the Bible says it this way. Continue living, continue in the direction of the things that you've been learning. And what's the second part? The things you have become what? Does your Bible still say assured? I know y'all won't tell me, but doesn't it say that? This is a command. He said, you continue when you walk out that door and go home today and go to work tomorrow and cook supper tomorrow night and do your work, to continue in the things you have learned and be assured of. The word assured is a word from the root family of which we get the word faith and be faithful. You will never be faithful to something you're not convinced of. And you'll never be convinced of something unless somebody teaches you and God informs you. A man will... Voice his words. God alone can illumine you to see it. Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. And he says here, knowing of whom you've learned them. Paul pointing to himself, he said, I have never been a fly by night. I've never in other places. I've never robbed you, cheated you, took advantage of you, misled you. I have declared to you the whole counsel of God, he said. So take that into consideration that you haven't been misled. You haven't been mistaught. You haven't been deceived. But continue things you have learned and become convinced of. I have met way too many people in my life who learned a lot 
but depended on none of it. Why? They weren't convinced that it would work. They learned it. They can quote it today. They just didn't believe it would work. Don't you be like that. Amen. Would you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, this morning, we give you thanks for loving us, for caring for us, and for teaching us. I pray your spirit, Lord God, will be at work in us in a convincing way to show us that what we heard, and what your word says, we can trust in. That's the only way we can please you in this life. God, deliver us from fretting and worrying of losing heart and fainting and coming up short. God, deliver us from all of that. Ask you to bless the young folks in our church and the times they've been through and the difficulty they've had, that divine comfort would come to them and bring them peace. We hold them before you and ask you to do that in Jesus' name. As we walk out of here today, we ask you to guide us and direct us. Deal with us. Point us the way we ought to go. In Jesus' name, amen. I cast all my cares upon you. I lay all of my burdens down at your feet time I don't know what to do I just cast all my cares upon you I cast all my cares upon Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Father, as we go our separate ways today, may the word find its lodging place in each one of us, from our youngest to the oldest. May we always know that you have spoken truth to us. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.